Welcome to the Master Your Mix podcast, helping engineers, producers, and artists create professional recordings and mixes, even from home. I'm your host, Mike and Davina. Let's get started. Hey, welcome to the Master Mix Podcast. My name is Mike Navina, and thank you so much for being here with me today. Today, my guest is Dusty Wakeman. And if you're not familiar with Dusty and his work, Dusty has a long history in the industry working in many different areas. He was the owner of Mad Dog Studios, where he was a producer, engineer, and he worked with artists such as Dwight Yoakam, Lucinda Williams, Roy Orbison, and so many others. Currently, he is the president of Mojave Audio, which make amazing microphones. And we're definitely going to talk about a lot of those in this interview here. And in this interview, we talk a lot about Dusty's history, the path that he took to get ultimately to where he is today. And we get into a really good conversation about microphones and the different types of microphones. And we also get into the things that you should be looking out for when buying a microphone or simply just picking the right microphone in the studio. I think you're going to learn a ton from this interview. So let's just jump right into it. Dusty Wakeman, thank you so much for being on the Master Mix podcast. How are you doing? I'm doing great, Mike. It's great to be here. Amazing. Well, for people who might not know your history, you've got quite a long history of being in the industry in many different facets. Can you give us that story about how you got into music and ultimately to where you are today? Well, I grew up in Texas and, you know, saw Elvis and the Beatles on the Ed Sullivan show, and that was pretty much it. That's what I want to do. And uh, been playing in guitar since I was 10 and bass since I was 12. You know, I, I love living in California, but culturally, musically, Texas is a great place to be from. A great music tradition down there. So it was good growing up there. Uh, played in bands, in and out of college, wanted to study recording engineering, but back in the early 70s, that wasn't a thing yet. And even at University of Texas, you couldn't major in electric bass. So I was kind of out of luck there. So I'd go to school for a semester and then go on the road and play in, in bars six nights a week, four hours a night for a while, and then burn on that and go back to school. But finally, I got a job with a band. Uh, I was probably 20, and they were real well established in the in the hall, the dance halls. So if you draw like a triangle between Houston, San Antonio, and Austin, there's all these little towns out there, mostly German towns, and they all have American Legion halls or Knights of Columbus halls. And this group, the Barons, they'd been out there for 15 years and were making, you know, good money playing Friday and Saturday nights. And then around Christmas, we'd do like 20 dates in a row, but always had like 500 to a thousand kids. And we're the first band out there to actually carry production, you know, to have a, a snake and a guy mixing from the back and some lights. Um, and, and it was just great. But the, the big draw there was they owned a recording studio, a professional recording studio in a suburb of Houston. And it was basically, oh, you want to engineer? Here's the keys. Here, your, your first session is tomorrow. So that's where I first cut my, my teeth on engineering. First session I did was a mariachi trio that didn't speak English. And I didn't speak Span any Spanish at all at the time. <laughs> so it was, you know, point, stand here and sign language. But it was great. I still have the 45. And then, uh, you know, I just got to live in the studio for those two years. I was in that band. It was, it was great. And then I joined a band that was a Billy Gibbons from ZZ Top. His band before ZZ Top was called Moving Sidewalks. And I got in a band called Buzzbone that was the drummer and the keyboard player from the Moving Sidewalks. So we were kind of hot shit around Houston. And that got me to California uh, to record at a legendary studio called Indigo Ranch, 
with a, a great British engineer producer named Chris Bryant. This was mid seventies. And I just fell in love with LA. I mean, the studio was out in Malibu and, you know, we drove out in the middle, got there in the middle of the night and woke up to paradise in this awesome studio and we're there for a week. So I was just like, that was my first impression of, of LA, you know, was, was Malibu. So <clears throat> it's not all like that. I found out later, <laughs> but that got me hooked. And then we came out to showcase and, and nothing really happened with the band, but I knew that I, I needed to move to LA. So as the band was dissolving, I, w- I was working at a music store in Houston and uh, I just sent out resumes to a bunch of places out here looking for a job. And I got a call back from West LA music, which has kind of evolved into West Lake pro now and uh, ended up working there from 1977 to 1980. And that was really a like right place at the right time thing because the very first Tascam 40-4 and 80-8, the, the half-inch 8-track came out and the Model 5A mixer. And nobody in the store knew, knew how to operate that stuff except for me. So, you know, people would come in the store saying, you know, I want to buy an 8-track and say, well, you got to talk to Dusty. So I had kind of like a little thing. You had a bit of an there. advantage there. It was nice. It was nice. And then, you know, they would, they'd buy this stuff and not have a clue what to do with it. So they would hire me to come out to their, their houses and plug it in for them. And that was the very, very beginning of home recording, you know? And then I had a, a really good customer, a guy named Mark Avnet, who was really smart, talented guy who had some dough. And he was just like, I'm going to start a studio over in Venice. You want to do it with me? And I was kind of burnt out on retail. So I kind of just cavalierly said, sure. And uh, we started Mad Dog in 1980, January 1980. And we're at that location for 15 years and then moved to Burbank for the until 2008. And I started at, I, I worked as an engineer and producer nonstop for 25 years and loved every minute of it, but kind of burnt out on it. So when this Mojave thing came around in 2005, I jumped on that and Kind of did both for a while, but now it's pretty much Mojave all the time. I still record and play, but and still love it, but it's not my my job. I'm not trying to make a living at it. Yeah, you can enjoy your your passion a little bit more without right. it being a job, right? Exactly. But I, you know, that being said, I've been playing. I played five gigs last month and love that. Nice. Uh, I played a week ago in at a place called the Venice West. That's down in Venice. And it's in the building where the original Mad Dog Studios was from 1980 to 1995. So that was some sort of full full circle moment to be standing on that stage playing, you know, looking around. It's like, wow, it's been a lot of my life here. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. So you had mentioned your, your first band, they had a studio and they kind of just gave you the keys and you were able to go in. Were they teaching you any of the studio side of things at that time? Or were you just kind of doing it all trial by error and, you know, see what happens? Well, that wasn't actually my first band. It was just kind of a, a job that I, I got into. I auditioned for that band. But all through high school, I played with a really talented bunch of guys. Well, I'll start at the beginning. Two guitar players and I all studied with the same guitar teacher. So he would teach us individually and collectively. He had a studio in his house, a four track, which we're talking late sixties here. So there okay. was such a thing as a four track professional recording studio. And that's who really got me started recording. I was just fascinated. So I'd spend as much of my time, you know, talking about recording and learning that stuff 
as I would doing my bass lessons. And then we were, we were all big Zappa fans and Beatle fans. So, you know, the very first, like, I think it was a crown tape deck that you could overdub on. You had to throw a switch and it moved the head a little bit. So you could kind of like record in the, in the gaps. A friend of mine bought one of those and we'd stay up all night, you know, making tape loops and backward stuff and just screwing around with it. Just always loved that stuff. So I had a little bit of a background before I got in the Barons, but in the Barons, yeah, there was two guys there that taught me how to work that studio. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's interesting to hear kind of I always love learning how people get into this stuff and how they kind of pick up the skills and, and who teaches them or if they're self-taught to see how that how that evolves. And I also feel like as musicians, we tend to I, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe, maybe this is your experience. It's certainly mine where like when you're a musician, you tend to just focus on learning your own instrument first. And you're like, I got to get the best like bass tone or the best drum tone. Like, did you feel like that was kind of how you started learning as well? Or was it like did you were you just open to recording everyone and all instruments and it was it was it was pretty much a dual track between playing and recording. And I, I love them both equally. Oh, I know the point I was going to make. Uh, I've got a SoundCloud account, and I, what I've been doing this is like a an old age legacy thing. Is I've been going back through my archives, and especially thanks to Isotope, and we can get into that. Been like transferring stuff from cassettes and from DATs. I had to get my DAT machine fixed. Uh, and transferring stuff and posting it on my SoundCloud account, which is just under my name. And my band from high school was called Felix Fly. Ten years ago, for our high school 40th reunion, we got together and rehearsed for a week and actually did a show. It was a benefit for one of our fallen comrades. And, you know, everybody's still playing great, sounding great. And so after that, we got inspired and did a remote album, you know, sending stuff, tracks to each other. And that Felix Fly album is on my SoundCloud account. So, you know, people can actually go on there and hear what we did 40 years later. Awesome. And that's what really started it all. Uh, do you remember a company called Doe Quarter? You ever heard Do of Doe Quarter? I haven't, no. Okay, so, so the same time that the TAC3340 came out, which was their consumer four track, uh, a company called Doe Quarter came out and they made cassette machines and they made a four track and they were like a cheaper version of the 3340. They went out of business, but I bought one of those and would it, when I was living in Austin, going to school, I would take it out and go to like clubs and record my friends' bands, just four track and got a lot of experience doing that too. That helped get the thing going and really, you know, it's like, yeah, I love recording stuff. That's awesome. Well, I mean, that's typically how most of us start, right? You just kind of find your friends and whoever you can to record. And, you know, maybe it's just doing some stuff for free to get some experience. And, yeah. you know, you eventually, you eventually start feeling confident enough that you can charge people for it and maybe maybe even make a career out of it, right? Yeah, absolutely. I th and I think these days with the hardware cost being, the, you know, the, the cost of entry being so low these days that that's a great way to get started. Anybody wants to get in this business because you can't really go, you know, the, the, the days of going and getting a runner job at Capitol studios are pretty much gone. You know, the, I mean, those opportunities are so few and far between compared to what they used to be. Yeah. Do you feel like in hindsight, do you feel that um, like that internship route, do you feel like that's still kind of the best way to go about it? Or do you think people can have just as much success just jumping into the home studio market for themselves and, and learning that way. I think it's both. And it's really what you aspire to, 
you know, if you want to be a professional recording engineer and that's your, your main gig, uh, as opposed to being an artist who also makes their own records. Uh, I think it's great if you can get in at a, at a real facility, but I know it's, it's hard. It's hard these days. I mean, I never did that. I, when we started Mad Dog in 1980, I had the recording experience I've told you about, but I never had the experience of working at record plan or capital or something like that and learning from people who were above me. Uh, Mark and Avnet, my original partner and I, I mean, we built Mad Dog in Venice and a lot of, you know, we just made shit up, figured stuff out. And then as we started to become more and more legit and outside engineers came in, we would learn from them. But the second part of my education was when I, I hooked up with a producer guitar player named Pete Anderson, uh, who was Dwight Yoakam's guitar player and producer. And we were like a producer engineer team for about 15 years, made a lot of records together. So Mad Dog was a funky little place in Venice. But when we hooked up with Dwight Yoakam and he had a major label deal, he lived five minutes from Capitol. And so it's like, yeah, let's let's record at Capitol, which, of course, I was thrilled about studio B there is still my favorite studio in the world. And, you know, getting to work there was really what finished my education. I mean, it never stops. And I love, I'll watch any documentary about record making. I was in heaven from watching, let it be over Thanksgiving or get back. I'm sorry. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but there was a couple of guys there, Pete Dell, who's now a mastering engineer and Christina Picari, who were staff engineers at Capitol, were assisting me as an independent coming in. You know, I was the first engineer. They were the second. But they were way more knowledgeable than I was. And the one thing that I was smart enough to do was to say, I don't know. What do you like? It's, you know, where do you <laughs> want the drums? It's like, where do you like them? And, you know, and people light up when you when you do that. Oh, well, I like them over here. Well, what mics do you want? It's like, well, I'm used to. You know, I know 87s and 414s and 421s and SM57s, but what else do you got that I don't know about? Oh, well, you know, let's put the C12As <laughs> on the toms and get the, the C24 out for room and, you know, all this great stuff that I, I'd never gotten my hands on before. So I really learned a lot. I made a lot of records with both those guys over the years, and I'm still very close with, with both of them. And learn so much from those guys. And then there's a, a, a mix engineer named David Leonard because the early Dwight Yoakam stuff I mixed, but then as we kind of moved up and, you know, it's like, okay, we're going to hire a mixer to mix the record now, which, you know, of course I wasn't crazy about initially. It's I want to mix it. I recorded it, but I didn't really know what that mixing thing was at that time. I mean, I knew how to get it. I had talent and could get a good balance, make things sound good, but I didn't know, I mean, he was the first guy I ever saw use parallel compression. I'm like, what the hell is he doing? Jeez, this is crazy. And his, you know, really advanced level. And I think he'd been an assistant to David, David Kahn, who's a legend in our industry, producer and engineer, and had learned a lot of stuff from him. But yeah, David Leonard, I learned a lot of stuff from about mixing. That was kind of the beginning of that path. Yeah. So... I kind of made up for not coming up the traditional way later on. But but I but I love your approach of just like asking people like, oh, what what, what would you recommend? What do you know? It, it's funny. I, I had a previous guest recently who said that, you know, the uh, 
he, he gave a very similar story of like, you know, when you walk into a studio that has a different board or something that you've never used before, you can just kind of say like, oh, this just looks a little different than what I'm used to. Like, can you give me a quick lowdown on what's, yeah, you know, absolutely. how it's set up? And then, it's, then all of a sudden you're flying, right? <laughs> Man, the, the first time I walked into Studio B, this was for Dwight Yoakam's first record. And what they'd done, they'd already done an EP. And then I got hired to, when he got signed to do four additional tracks because I'd hooked up with Pete and we'd made a, another album together. And he was like, yeah, I want you to come engineer for me. Um, and it's funny because, you know, Dwight was signed out in Nashville and they wanted him to record there. But that was back in the like looking for love urban cowboy days. And they were very conservative recording there. There was rules about how loud you could have your amp and stuff in general. And I was a rock guy doing punk records and they loved seeing those needles slamming on my <laughs> tape deck, you know. So, but you know, the day that I walked in Capitol, I was shaking life and relief. It's like, I don't belong here. I have no clue what I'm doing. You know, they're going to, it's that imposter syndrome thing that I've heard everybody, including Bob Clearmountain talk about. So something that I think we all share and, you know, not only engineers, but musicians and just kind of in any profession, you know, people have that case of imposter syndrome. Sometimes of course. Like, I, I really don't know what I'm doing, but just say yes and show up and, figure it out. Well, that, yeah, that's a that's a really important part of it, right? And, I, and you're right. I think everybody suffers from imposter syndrome. So it's like, you know, trying to find that way to, to get over it and not let it paralyze you to the point where you're not actually making any progress or, you know, maybe even hurting your career in some cases, right? Right. Right. Yeah. You had mentioned that uh, when you started working on some of the Dwight Yoakam stuff, like it was, you know, there was those restrictions that people had on like, you know, how allowed to make your guitar and that kind of stuff. And then you come in as this like kind of punk rock engineer who's like, let's pin everything. How, right. what was that? What was that transition like? Like, I, I'm, I'm assuming for them, they, it was something different and unique. So, you know, was that an easy thing to get into and to just do your thing with or, was there some pushback at the time about that? No, it was really easy. And it's it was easy because I worked with and for Pete Anderson, who was really like great at being in charge of the project and allowing me to do my thing. I was always like, no artist ever messed with me in the <laughs> whole time we worked together. You know, I was kind of in this protected bubble thanks to Pete's skill as a producer. Yeah. And I'm sure that to some degree that that gave you a bit of an advantage at some point too, because then you became new, you became known for having a, a sound that was different than everyone else, right? Yeah. Well, Dwight and Steve Earle came kind of came out at the same time, and they really just like for that era of country music, they really kicked the door down. You know, when you look at Guitars Cadillacs by Dwight and Guitar Town by Steve Earle, those just like. 90 degree turn in the sound of country music. I don't know that I was the first, but I'm the, you know, I think Dwight Yoakam's records were the first that I'm aware of to have like an AMS gated snare reverb. Yeah. You know, that was just not what they did, you know? So it's yeah, definitely a transition to a tra transitional period, I guess, in, yeah. in the yeah. world of country music. That, that's awesome. So you had, you had had, all this experience as an engineer and then you got into the music store world and I'm sure that that world just, well, I, actually it was the other way around, right? You were in the music store world first. Well, I had a little bit of recording experience from Texas days. True, true. And then three years at West LA Music, the late seventies. And then we started Mad Dog. And that's really when I started like making a living being a recording engineer. Yeah. And then after your studio, you decided to move on to Mojave 
And I'd love to talk about that transition and, and kind of how that all came about and, you know, what, what ultimately brought you to, to working with Mojave Audio. Well, I, you know, made records nonstop for 25 years. And my wife and I, my wife worked in the movie business as a set decorator. So being on a movie is kind of like making an album. You're just gone for long chunks of time. So we didn't really start a family. We were kind of ambivalent about it for a long time until we weren't and were, you know, my son was born. And then when my daughter came along, it you know, I just didn't want to be an absentee father. And, you know, recording engineering is a young man's game in terms of sitting there for 12 hours doing guitar solos over and over again, you know. And I just frankly burn out on that. I've done it for 25 years and it's like I really don't want to comp vocals anymore you know i what interests me now as an engineer or as a producer is capturing magic mm -hmm. so i love getting people together and playing either as a musician or as as an engineer and capturing that but i'm not really interested in the building a car way of making records anymore it's interesting that you framed it that way though because it sounds like in some ways, the work that you're doing now is maybe even more enjoyable and you're you're still making music that sounds incredible or that you're happy with. So do you think that, like you said, it's a young man's game to, to be in the studio now and to spend those 12 hours doing all the guitar solos over and over again? Like, do you feel do you feel like people should be incorporating more of a, a newer approach where like like what you're following now where it's more just in the magic or, or is there a reason why people have to spend so much time working over and over on the same takes? Well, you know. When you work with the best player, I was really lucky to work with great players most of the time. And then as, when I got into like pr pretty much producing full time, then I started working with some more baby bands, what we used to call baby bands, younger cats. So I was spoiled by the level of musicianship. Like my guys that if I get to pick the band, you know, LA is like studio drummer heaven. You know, I can, I've got half a dozen guys that are world-class drummers and their kits are going to sound great. They record all the time. Makes me look like a genius, but I'm just plugging the right guy in and letting them do their yeah. thing. And I have that, you know, in, in every position, keyboards, guitar, whatever, horns, whatever it is, that's part of the beauty. And, you know, you're in Toronto, you're in a major area, you have the same network and people in Nashville have the same thing in New York, but, you know, it's, it doesn't exist everywhere. And so it's it's great to be here where it's just that level of cat. So I was spoiled to that. But, you know, I think that the fact that, I mean, we did a track with an artist I worked with named Anne McHugh, great artist. She's Australian, but lives in Nashville. Singer, songwriter. She's learned to engineer and produce. She produces other people. And we did a track last summer where none of us were ever in the same spot. You know, it started with her guitar, vocal click track and then it went to the drummer and he cut the drums at his place dave raven who's amazing and then it came to me and i put the bass on and we all videotaped ourselves playing our parts and she put together a video afterwards you know we couldn't have done that any other way there was you know it was a charity thing there was no budget for it we're in different cities so i think that that's amazing that we can do that i mean what yeah. a great time that we live in and if that's the way you need to do it awesome and with COVID, that throws another wrench in there to deal with in terms of getting people together. 
Yeah. But it really sounds like it comes down to the musicians themselves at the end of the day. Like if you're working with good musicians, you don't have to do those takes over and over again. You can right. you can get things done much faster. But but yeah, I guess what you, what you were kind of saying earlier is that, you know, when you're in that world as a full time engineer, you are dealing with those, quote unquote, baby bands that maybe have maybe don't have the experience to to be able to nail all the takes right away and that kind of thing. Right. 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 So then you're creating you kind of go into a different level in terms of creation. You're, you know. Pete, Pete was a, is from Detroit, Pete Anderson, and he actually worked building cars. And in his, you know, his approach was very much like a car factory. It's like, okay, this is how you make a record. In fact, I think he's just about to release a class on like how to produce a record. And I've done it a lot of different ways. You know, I think Pete's way is one way. And when it works like Dwight Yoakam or Michelle Schacht or artists like that, Everybody from Dwight Yoakam to the Meat Puppets that we worked with, you know, we made those are great records and it worked. But I've also worked with other artists where that doesn't. You can't plug them into that framework. You yeah. Do it a different way. So, you know, it's all good. Of course. However you get there. There's many paths to the mountaintop. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. So then what how or when did the relationship with David Royer come into play? Oh, okay. So I'm also a desert rat. I spend a lot of time out in the Joshua Tree area. I just love it out there. That's my magic spot. And it's two and a half hours from LA. So you can actually get there fairly often. So my wife and I had a guest ranch out there for 18 years. Um, There was an old motel at the end of the road. I don't know if you've ever heard of Pappy and Harriet's, but it's a legendary music venue that's out there still going on. Um, and there's the whole Graham Parsons legacy and the out there and the stones. And, you know, there's just so much mythology and music that's gone on since the seventies out there. So I was part of kind of like the next generation. And I heard about this guy, I've got a friend named Victoria Williams, who's a great artist and she lives out there. And she told, told me about this guy that was kind of a neighbor who would show up on a, you know, a Honda 250 with a microphone in a sock and, you know, here's something I made for you. <laughs> and this was all pre-Royer Labs. So that he was kind of this mythical character that I knew of. And then I I did a project with a producer named Craig Street, who had worked on uh, Cassandra Wilson's early stuff and Nora Jones' early stuff. He was mostly a jazz guy from New York. And I got to engineer for him an album with uh, Michelle and Deggio Cello who's a great bass player, played with Prince and a great R&B artist on her own. So he came into to Mad Dog. This was Mad Dog Burbank, the big one, and had a bunch of ribbon mics. And I, I didn't have any ribbon mics. And I would say, you know, anything you want me to, to it's like, yeah, put, put a Coles over the drum kit. It was like Abel of Oil Jr. on drums, who's Paul <laughs> McCartney's drummer yeah, for the yeah. last 15 years. And Doyle Bramble Jr. on guitar and, uh, you know, Lisa Melvoin on keyboards. It was an all-star band. Yeah, it, it was, sounds like it. Yeah. So he said, have you ever worked with Abe Jr. before? And I said, no, I never have. He said, just do whatever he tells you to do in, <laughs> in terms of the drum sound. And just, he's, you know, he'll he tell you what thing, to yeah. do. It's like, awesome. So, okay, put a Coles right here. And, you know, most, most of the drum tracks on that album were three mics. And But he would listen to it and he'd go out there and tweak the kit for the song. He'd say, don't change anything. I'll do it out here. And that was just amazing. So I fell in love with ribbon mics. It's like, I got to get some ribbon mics. 
at the same time, I saw the first like ad for Royer ribbons, uh, probably in mix magazine and saw that they were in Burbank. It's like, Oh, they're my neighbors. So I just cold called them and said, Hey, I'm dusty. I've got mad dog studios. I'd like to try out some of your mics. And I met a guy named John Jennings, who's the VP of sales and marketing for Royer and one of the founders and owners. And we struck up a relationship and became friends and he'd be like, can I bring some mics over to try out? And, you know, I kind of became like the R and D studio for Royer labs. And then I would be doing like, I was doing a big band project um, for a professor from, from Cal state Northridge, which has a big jazz program. So all these top, top studio guys used to be his students. So he was able to get them to all come in and like, we did, I think, two albums together of big band stuff. But I would call up John at Royer and say, hey, can I borrow like six 121s and six 122s and two SF24s for the weekend for this big band thing? And he'd be like, yeah, sure. Let me get it together for you. So we got to be close friends. We're still close friends. And he brought over the prototype for the MA200, which is our, basically it's David Royer's version of a U67, which is one of my favorite all-time mics. I had a great pair of them. And the legendary Eddie Kramer was working in my A-room doing basic tracks. So he was cutting drums and he had my 67s up out in the room. John brought over the prototype for the MA200 and Eddie said, well, go toss it up there. So we put it out with the 267s. We're in there and it's like, okay, you tell me which one of these is not a U67. And I was, it was like love at first listen. And I was like, (laughs) what are you gonna, guys going to sell this thing for? What are you doing with this? He said, well, we're starting a new company called Mojave Audio. Uh, the, we only had one mic, the MA200, and it's going to sell for around a grand. And I'd been, this is when my second child came around, and I was kind of like, just like, hmm, what else can I do to make a living? Because I'm kind of just, you know, things were going well. They were cruising along, but I was just burnt out on that kind of record-making you know, and I wanted wanted to be home with my family at night, wanted to be around, wanted to be a dad. So it's like, well, we're starting this new company and, you know, we're looking for somebody to run it. And I said, well, I'm kind of looking for something else to do. And fortunately, I had the, the small business background from being a studio owner. Uh, I'd gone back to college in 2000 and taken a couple of accounting classes and a business law class. So I had kind of filled in some gaps in my knowledge there. And then I had the the background from working at West LA Music of selling pro audio, had that background. So it was just kind of like the right place at the right time. That was in January of 2005. And we talked about it for a while. And I started uh, at Mojave full-time in September of 2005. I actually went to Burning Man and kind of like cleansed my palate, like, okay, time for a major life shift and came back in the next week started (laughs) in Mojave and with one mic. And, you know, I knew David, but you know, David and I are really, really close. He may be outside the store. I'm not sure if he's here or not. He goes, we moved out. We were, we shared a building with Royer labs until this last summer. And finally we just outgrew it and they needed the space. We needed the space. So we're about five minutes away in our own, Mojave World Headquarters, I call it. Amazing. So did you did you have any technical background in like mic design at that point? Or like no. do, do, do you no. even now? Was it all just David's brain? 
I've learned, I've learned reams and it's funny. It's like, I've, I, I still learn from David all the time. You know, and David's an autistic genius, technical Grammy award winner, just absent-minded professor, scientist guy. He's also a desert rat. So we share that bond. It's like Mojave. I'm all about Mojave. You know, that's where I spend half my life is in the Mojave desert. So we've really, I mean, he's like a brother to me now. And we've really, really bonded, but he's strictly the technical guy. And then we have another guy, Big John Nuss, who's kind of our main chief tech who works with David, who was an assistant at Mad Dog, but I, I recruited him. I said, I need somebody who wants to learn at, at the side of, of the master, learn what David knows. And John was that guy. So he knows way more than I do, but I have learned a lot. And, you know, I always say it's, man, you know, I learned stuff about microphones. I wish when I was a recording engineer, <laughs> I knew all this stuff about yeah. microphones. You know, I knew what I knew, but like, I really didn't use ribbon. Ribbon mics were something you did when you did a horn date at Capitol. You know, you broke out the RCAs. That's was my knowledge of ribbon mics. I didn't know that like Eddie Kramer recorded Jimi Hendrix with a buyer 160 on his guitar amps. There was a lot I didn't know. And, and the rebirth of ribbons was because of David Royer and, you know, Royer Labs, Rick Parada and John Jennings. I mean, they really brought ribbon mics back from the dead. And because David had this idea to offset the ribbon, it made it possible for ribbon mics to handle high SPLs and you could put it in front of, of a Marshall cabinet. And that's what really caught caught him on fire was that. Absolutely. That's, that's how I learned about them for sure. Right? Everybody, it's ubiquitous now. 121 right up on the speaker. And that's part of everybody's guitar sound. Of course. I'll debate the wisdom of using an SM57 as the other mic. It's like, yeah, it'll get you there. But I think there's way more elegant ways to get there. For what, what would you prefer? Well, you know, like Dream Theater, right? Uh, always an uh, an MA three hundred one FET on the guitar amps. That's the sound they use. A one twenty one and a three hundred one FET, and it's the balance between those. We don't currently make them, but we made some small diaphragm condensers: the MA one hundred, which was tube, and the one hundred one FET, which was solid state. Which we want to make again. I want to repackage them and relaunch them. It's just that people don't really buy small diaphragm condensers like they should. People aren't that aware of how awesome they are, but mm -hmm. One of our two SDCs and a 121, that's the ultimate guitar miking setup for me. And cool. it gives you the same thing that 57 gives you. It's just a prettier, more hi-fi without the, the presence the, peak. Yeah, the presence that the 57 does, yeah. Right. So maybe you want that, maybe you don't. But I like a little more hi-fi version. Even back in the day, I would use 421s a lot of time just because they sounded a little smoother to me than, than 57s. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So speaking of these different mic types and, and condenser mics and ribbon mics and, and dynamic mics, um, you know, what, when and where would you recommend people use one mic versus another? Oh, man. You know, you can go on our website and spend hours seeing, <laughs> you know, examples of every possible instrument. Um, I'll tell you a funny thing that happened. I've always been and. I think I got this from Joe Ciccarelli. I'm not sure. He's, he's a pal from way back. But, you know, he, he once said, I don't know who decided that you have to cram an SM57 up 
on the speaker code. Like who, who made that law? <laughs> and he's, you know, we'll, uh, we'll circle back to him, but you know, I've been telling people for years, especially like our MA 300, which is basically our U 67. It's like, try, try that, you know, six to eight inches away from the speaker. Cause that's, that sound half of all classic rock electric guitars were recorded that way, especially starting with the Beatles. And it's funny because I got it. Uh, I try to stay off of gear sluts or whatever they're called now gear space, I think. Yeah. Because uh, it's, you know, that's like getting on social media. You'll lose a day on there. So unless there's something I need to respond to directly, that directly is about Mojave, I stay off there. But I got an alert the other day, Klaus Hein, who's another microphone genius, you know, was talking about that he doesn't recommend using U67s close up on guitar amps because it eventually the SPL stretches out the capsule. So a guy was like, well, I, I like to use my MA300s. You know, what do you think about this? And I just watched Get Back. And once the Beatles move to Apple, you see U67s on those Silver Face Twins. But they're about, you know, 10 inches back, 8 inches. And so I said, you know, all due respect to Klaus, because he's one of the one of the, the handful of masters, along with David and Wes Dooley and a few others, you know, these guys seem to have pretty good results doing it that way. So watch, watch, get back and, uh, you know, do it that way. And you're going to be fine. Yeah. And by the way, our capsules only cost like 150 bucks. So if you need to replace one, you know, it's probably worth it to get the guitar sound you like. Of course. <laughs> so it was funny for that to happen. Yeah, of course. It's it's interesting because I, I feel like so much modern music these days seems to be so hyped up in the top end and, and it's everything sounding so much brighter. And I, I don't know if it's just like mic design, but a lot of like condenser microphones are very, very bright. And I find they seem to be getting brighter and brighter with all these new models that come out. But ribbon microphones are so dark usually. And so so I'm curious to get your thoughts on like, you know, really, when is the best time to use a ribbon mic? Because it seems kind of counterproductive to, to what the mixing stage is going to be doing. So I, you know, I think that the, the spread of ribbons, thanks to, to Royer and now, you know, they're everywhere. Everybody makes them ha has kind of opened up people's ears. I should say to not everything having to be in your face, bright, mm -hmm. you know, and part of really great engineers is using their mics to paint that picture. You know, I know when I was younger, it was like brighter is better. And most of our Mojave mics are based on German style designs. You know, it's David Royer's interpretation. And that's pretty much the riff that everybody's doing is based on, you know, Neumanns and AKGs and Telefunkens. Um, and those are all bright mics. We're used to that sound, especially on, on vocals and acoustic guitar and stuff like that. But being able to have, to be able to paint that picture using different mics, that's part of the fun. That's your color palette. And, and it's funny, that kind of brings us around to our new mic, the MA-37, which is David Royer's interpretation of the classic Sony C-37A. And there's a couple of different, you know, Tone Lux is doing the JC, as in Joe Ciccarelli, 37, which is, a they're doing a clone. They're doing an exact replica, which we don't do. We do David's modern update of things, mm -hmm. but still in the same ballpark. And people love C-37s, people that know them. And that's a very dark microphone. 
And the MA30, our MA37 has a little more output because the, the Sony's really low output, but huge headroom. You can't distort the damn things. And it's a little more open on the top end, but it's still a, a dark mic. You know, it's a totally different color. And I really think it falls like halfway between our German style condensers and a ribbon. It's like right in there. So it's very useful, Mike. And, you know, the, a lot of the pros these days are, they don't want everything like that, you know, and especially if you're doing a retro thing or a lo-fi thing, you know, and but people are loving the MA37. It's only been out for a month now, but if you go on our YouTube channel or our website, uh, you can hear like drums I was able to go into a studio and do a drum kit with nine MA37s. Oh, wow. Which is something you'd never do in real life. But <laughs> I was like, I've got one, you know, this is the only time I'll ever have nine mics at once where I can do this. So it's David Sprang is playing drums out at the late David Bianco's studio, which is right near here uh, called Dave's Room. And it, there's video of it on, on our YouTube channel. And you know, it just sounds great. And it, that's not something I would probably do for a record, you know, but it sounds great on overheads. It sounds killer on toms, you know, it sounds great on room mics. It's something you can just compress the shit out of and not get a lot of harshness because it, it tames that top end really nicely. Yeah. Or if you have a sibilant singer, it's great for that, for taming that. And, uh, you know, it's just great to have these palettes. So we tell the MA-37, this, this isn't your, you know, one microphone that you're going to put up and use every day. That's, that's our other mics. We already mm -hmm. do that. This is a different color for people that can afford and to A and B have the knowledge of using these different shades. Yeah. Yeah, I like how you put it that way, because it is really just kind of finding a slot for everything. And if everything is always bright, then nothing is dark, you know, like there's everything's just right. going to start to sound thinner. And so you have to find that kind of slot for everything and having some of these darker mics sometimes let things sit a little further back in the mix. And and sometimes that's what you want. Not everything needs to be fighting for the, the forefront of the mix all the time, right? Right. As a, as a mixer, which I still love doing and still enjoy uh learning about learning new stuff about and with all the new tools and we should talk about that too but you know it took me a long time like i knew how to use the high pass filter but it took me a long time to use to learn how to use the high cut filter mm -hmm. I was like well why do you want to get rid of that stuff and a lot of that uh, i worked a lot a long time ago with chad blake who's a dear friend but also one of my heroes and he was really the first person to show me kind of how to use, you know, like on guitar mics, the, the high cut filter would always be engaged or David Leonard does that too. And it's like, well, what are you doing? It's like, well, I'm making space for these other things that live up there. And it's like, oh, wow. Light bulb moment, you know? And if you can do that with the microphones, that's always the best place to start. Your EQing is with microphones. It's mm -hmm. the Al Schmidt approach, you know, the right microphone in the right place and no EQ. Yeah. So the older I get, the less I want to EQ things, the more I want to find a cool sound and print it. Of course. Yeah. And that, that makes a lot of sense to find that right mic to fit that slot 
and uh, to kind of like almost act as an EQ in its own in its own way. Right. Uh, it's it's definitely right. a better way to go, and it makes a lot less work for you to do later on. Right. Yep. Absolutely. Push up those faders, and it's like, oh, that sounds nice. <laughs> so, in your experience, having worked in the studio, having worked with so many different microphones, and having worked uh, the fact that you work at a microphone company now. I feel like a question that comes up that comes up all the time is what makes one microphone better than another? And maybe it's a loaded question, but I'm curious to get your opinion on that. It, it's not loaded at all. Uh, and because we make such good microphones that I love and use all the time, I'm able to speak honestly about this. It's, you know, it's the design, but like I say, mostly everybody's riffing off what Neumann and, and AKG did, you know, 60, 70 years ago or in the ribbon world, what RCA started a hundred years ago, but it's the quality of the components that is what you hear. So that's why cheap Chinese mics sound like cheap Chinese mics. They're, you know, cause our mics are partially made, some of them completely, some of them partially in China. But David Royer early, early on, like in 2000 discovered that those capsules were actually quite good and very consistent because they found a way to, to mass produce them mm -hmm. so they're not all done by hand which you know you can buy some expensive hand-tuned capsules that are brilliant but if you get a dozen they're going to be a lot of variation in there the ones we use are just they're cookie cutter they are all very little variation and for us that's a good thing the consistency so as david would say they're quite adequate which is david you know that's about as excited as he gets so yeah. <laughs> then it comes down to transformers and the quality of the other audio components that you hear in the signal path. So our mics are dead simple. There's not a lot of circuitry. I call it simple yet elegant design, which is something I stole from the wine world. I saw a wine described that way, simple yet elegant. It's like, oh yeah, I like that. That's David's designs. So there's not a lot of crap. I mean, there's other of our competitors that keep putting more and more circuitry on mics you know, three in one, three different mics in one mic. And that's great, cool. But all that circuitry, it, you know, the audio has to go through it. So you're losing more and more of the original signal, the more stuff you heap in there. Mm -hmm. And that's why a lot of modern condenser mics, even by some of the big names, don't sound good because they're, they're cutting corners. They're using a, you know, a, a 50, they're using a five cent, uh, resistor when they could use a 50 cent resistor that sounds better we use the 50 because we're not great businessmen but we're great mic builders well it ultimately creates that sound that you guys are after so right. it makes sense right. it's interesting because I, I do feel like you kind of touched on this that there's so many manufacturers that are going for that german sound and there's so many that are like trying to clone these old mics and whenever like I, I always see a lot of companies advertising how special their how special their capsules are and how they're so close to the original mic and this and that. But I always feel like the descriptions for these things are sometimes very vague. And unless they're using the exact capsule that these old mics have, like you know, how do you know it's going to sound anything like the to, to to like the layman who doesn't know anything about uh, mic design? You know, they're not going to know what that capsule really sounds like in comparison well, to the, the original. Well, that's the thing. I mean, uh, U forty seven. I had a beautiful pair of U sixty sevens, but they didn't sound alike at all. And I knew which one I wanted over because I loved them on drum overheads. I knew which one I wanted over the hi hat and which one I wanted over the ride. 
you know, just from like, okay, I want number one on the left and number two on the right. And I used them for piano. I used them for everything, but they didn't sound identical because they were 65 years old, you know, and my 47 was built the same year I was born. So, you know, those things differ wildly. And that's part of the beauty of the age we live in now is you have access to all these things like Mojave mics and Royer ribbons that are new. So you're not going to have all those problems and you can get a lot more consistency. I mean, we do do stereo matching of our mics. Uh, if people want them, you know, for a small fee, we'll do stereo matching. But I tell people, it, you know, it's kind of not necessary. I mean, all you're really doing is get them, getting them closer together in sensitivity. And if that's a big deal for you, great, you know, but if you want for, to retain value, just get consecutive serial numbers and you'll be, you'll be good. Yeah. So if someone were looking to buy a new microphone, it's kind of safe to say that there's usually going to be a lot of different options for mics at different price points. Oh, there's so many, there's so many. So what should people be looking out for when they're making a purchasing decision? Well, I think that they listen, need to listen. You know, I mean, unfortunately, it's hard for people to get a, a live in-person demo. But we just added a feature to our website. I'm still tweaking it and working it with, with these guys, but it's from a company called Audio Test Kitchen. Yeah, they're great. Yeah, so they, they designed a player that we just helped launch. We're probably one of the first manufacturers to do this. So if you go on our website to any of the individual mic players, I think it says hear it now is the button mm-hmm. and that launches the audio test kitchen player. And that's all like high res level stuff. So if you don't want to listen, you can listen on our website, but that's mostly links to YouTube, you know, which is not as good as what's on the ATK player. Yeah. So we just launched that. Uh, and like I say, we're still tweaking it, but you can go on there now and, and see how it works. Yeah. I was definitely checking it out earlier. It sounds great. Well, yeah, I hope people will use that because if you really want to hear it in a critical environment, you want a, a high des, high res version, you know, at least 20, you know, 2448 or something like that, 2441. Yeah. I, I think a lot of people buy microphones based on hype and like a lot of people don't really know what they should be looking out for. Like, should they be, should people be paying attention to like frequency charts or should they be paying attention to any other specs that come well, along with the Well, res- response charts are great. They're fun to look at and they're informative, but they don't really tell you what anything sounds like. You got to hear it on instruments. So that's why I spend a lot of time um, creating content. And the good news for us, when we moved into the new Mojave World Headquarters, uh, is we have a little studio here, have a room for a little studio. So a lot of the stuff, if you go on the YouTube channel and listen to the interview of David talking about the MA-37, which I have that same content for all of our mics. It's David's philosophy, you know, very interesting stuff that was recorded in our little studio here. And some of the other audio samples were recorded here for like a drum kit. I needed to go to a real studio to do that, but for, you know, guitar vocal, or I've got the great Wally Ingram playing djembe. Uh, I've got uh, an amazing classical guitarist, Dr. Yalil Guerra playing a, a Cuban trace and playing classical guitar uh, that we recorded here. And it sounds, it sounds great. It's not a big live room, but it's, it's very functional. So I'm constantly creating more content. Uh, Fortunately, I have a great social media manager and she also does the editing and helps us shoot the videos. 
And she knows like the algorithms and how often we should post and not post. I'm not allowed to do that stuff because <laughs> I don't know anything about it. We do have a Mojave microphone users group on Facebook and that's my little domain. So if people want to like, I mean, you can always just email me at, at Mojave, dusty at Mojave audio.com. But if you want to interact, like kind of like we're interacting about gear and, you know, more deep dive, that's my little domain. So I encourage people to join up and, and go there and ask questions and interact. I try to post stuff there as much as possible. Very cool. Well, I know that uh, obviously, like you said, listening to a microphone is definitely going to be the best indication of whether it's going to work for you and your, your personal needs. Um, but I also think that there's just so many different classifications of microphones. Like, there, you know, there's like tube mics, there's FET mics and all that kind of stuff. And I'm curious to to talk a little bit about some of that. If, if people are looking at mics, you know, how how does a tube mic impact the sound that someone should expect to hear? Well, tubes basically, I mean, in general, uh, tend to round things off and warm things up a little bit. That being said, our tube mics, they're not very, quote, tubey. Like, we're not driving the, the tube very hard. David didn't – it's not like a guitar amp where you're looking to overdrive the tube to create harmonics and to create distortion. He's using it to achieve high fidelity. So gotcha. that's why we use tubes in our tube mics. You know, personally, probably my Desert Island mic is our MA301 FET, which is not by any means our most expensive mic. But for my, it's kind of like, I call it my U87 killer. You know, it's like you use it like you would use it. You can record anything with it. And our mic sounds a little sweeter because we use better components. It doesn't quite have that nasal thing that 87s have or modern 87s anyway have. Um but just a desert island mic, it sounds great on everything from my blown out vocals to, you know, rock guys like it on drum overheads because fets are a little faster. They're a little grabbier, you know, a little more aggressive. Uh, VO artists like it because it's a little more present, you know, so it makes their voice stand out. Uh, like I say, Dream Theater, uh, John Petrucci, it's, he uses them both live and in the studio. They're on, they're always there. That's their favorite mic for his guitar. And, you know, they just, it's a versatile workhorse. So mm -hmm. that's probably my, like, okay, if I had to pick one, that's the one, my Desert Island Mojave. And it's, yeah, sure. you know, very affordable. Yeah, absolutely. As I was blown away by the prices and, and how good they sound. And it's funny you mentioned the audio test kitchen thing, because I was also shooting out a bunch of them against some of those higher end mics. And it's, I prefer the sound of the Mojave. It's like, like time and time again, and they just blew me away. How, how good? Yeah, they were. we get that. Our mics are underpriced. I I screwed up in the beginning. I didn't know what I was doing. <laughs> I you mean, know, I shouldn't I, have said that. <laughs> I see some of our competitors that are charging two and three times what we charge, and I'm just like, wow, those guys, they got it figured out, you know. <laughs> but I'll put our MA1000 up against a, a Telefunken USA uh, 251 any day. And we may win the shootout, we may not, but it definitely goes shoulder to shoulder with the Telefunken and the Bach, you know, which costs two and three times as much. And yeah. when we win shootouts, it never surprises me. Yeah, it's amazing. When it comes to condenser mics, I typically see them advertised either as just a condenser or they'll specify it's a tube mic or they'll specify that it's a FET mic. How would you describe the differences? Well, most condenser mics are either FET or tube. 
those are pretty yeah. much your two choices, I think. I don't think there's another way to get a solid state mic because the FET replaces the tube. You got to have one or the other. Right. Makes sense. Yeah, I just feel like I always see FETs advertised as like a FET or or you do see like the two right. mics generally. Right. Like maybe it's just marketing. Yeah, marketing a lot hype. of it is. I mean, one reason I called the 201 FET and the 301 FET that we added the FET on is especially the 301, I, it's, the, it's the poor man's U47 FET. You can use it. You can use it on a kick. It works great outside of a kick drum. That's one of its popular apps. And the reason I say the 301 instead of the 201 is only because it's got the pad on it, which the 201 doesn't have. The 201 gotcha. is fixed cardioid. The 301 is multi-pattern and has the pad and the high pass filter. So a lot of times on a kick drum, you need the fat, the pad, or on a loud guitar amp. Mm -hmm. It's 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 awesome to hear that, to hear you talking about using these mics because it, it reminds me of when I was when I went to audio college and and I remember you know, one of my professors being like, don't put the condenser mic, like by the kick mic or by the kick. And then I remember like my first day working at a studio, the head engineer there was like, forget everything you learned in school because we right. do it differently. And we're going to put condenser mics here. We're going to do this. And you know, it's amazing. The, the sound oh, quality yeah. that you and get. Condenser mics on toms too. I didn't know that was a thing for decades. And then, you know, I, we, I went to Capitol and they would put the C12As if everybody doesn't know what a C12A is, it came after the C12. It looks like a 414, but it's tube. So it's kind of an interim product that they made. Really nice sounding mic. I had a beautiful pair of them. And those things on toms just sound great. I mean, even Al Schmidt, he used 414s on toms. That was his tom mic. They were the old ones that sound better because, as we were saying, the quality of the components inside the mic isn't as good as the old ones because they're, you know, you got accountants calling the shot. So it's like, oh, 50 cents versus 15 cents. We're going to go with 15 cents. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's funny how that that's happened, but, but yeah, you guys seem to be consistent with your, with your stuff already. Like, I mean, how long, how long has Mojave been around for? Uh, officially since 2005 okay. as Mojave audio, the current version, but David was hand making con condenser mic. He lives in Fullerton, California, where Fender started where Leo Fender was from down near it's about an hour south of here. It's in Orange County. And he was, he had a one man mic shop in his garage and was making mics under the Mojave name in the mid nineties. And we still see those pass through here. You know, some of them we call pipe bombs. <laughs> uh, it depends on which, which era, but you know, yeah. Under the Mojave name, he was doing it in the mid nineties. That's awesome. I did want to touch on our MA50, yeah, let's go which is it. our, Least expensive mic. It's our only transformerless mic, which is kind of funny because we're big transformer people. Love transformers, and that's a big part of our sound. But the TLM-103 that Neumann makes pisses me off so much because they sell boatloads of it, and that is not a great-sounding microphone. You know, it's harsh, and the reason it's harsh is because, again, it's the components. The capsules are killer, but it's the electronics that are in it that make it sound harsh. So just out of, you know, jealousy and anger, I handed one to David and said, you know, what would you do to fix this mic? And that's really what led to the MA50, our only transformless mic. It's $599, and it sounds great. I mean, it doesn't have the gorgeous low end that our other mics have because there's no transformer. 
Yeah. But I've recorded, that being said, I've put it on toms. I've put it on bass guitar amps. It sounds great. But for, you know, somebody that wants to get from their, to get their first good microphone for their home studio, that's a great way to go. For sure. And I'd much rather see them buy one of those than a TLM 103 or a 102 because it costs less and it sounds way better. Win-win. Yep. <laughs> I'm, last question about microphones. I'm curious to get your thoughts on, uh, it seems like these days there's more and more companies coming out with like mic modeling kind of mics. Uh, you know, I'm curious to get your thoughts on some of those. You know, you can't fight technology. I mean, it's going to go whether you like it or not. Mm-hmm. So getting pissed off, I feel that way like when the ADATs came out and I owned a professional recording studio and other studio owners in LA were bitching about you know, this is going to kill our businesses. You know, people are going to start. And then there was like a, a an organization that was formed to fight home studios because we're, we're paying for business licenses and permits and insurance and all this stuff to be legit businesses. And other guys are leaving flyers around studio lobby saying, hey, come record at my house. And they're not doing any of that stuff. So it's like, okay, level playing field. So... <laughs> You know, I understood that battle, but in terms of like fighting technology, you can't fight technology. It's just going to go. So you got to embrace it. Uh, I think as a learning tool, those modeling mics are great because it gives you an idea of the difference between these mics. Uh, So that only helps us. Yeah. I would like, I haven't achieved this yet, but I would love it if one of those companies would model our mics and offer them. I'd be way that would just be like free marketing, you know, because people are ultimately given the chance to get the real thing. You know, I mean, maybe mic modeling will go the way of plugins and they'll get so good that it'll make hardware mics obsolete. I don't know. They're not even close at this point. But I love plugins, you know. I'm a big UA guy. And I just use the same shit that I always used. I'm just using the the virtual version. Yeah, you know, if I can have Poltex and Fairchild's on every channel, that's pretty awesome. <laughs> at, and ten seventy three at a fraction of the know, cost too. Yeah, <laughs> at a fraction of the cost, right? Try to get that many Fairchild's together. Of course. You know? So, where do you see the future of Mojave then? Well, you know, we just launched, launched the MA thirty seven, and I encourage people to check it out because it's it's just like a whole different path for micro, our microphones. You know, and and it's it's great, and it really fills that space between the German style condensers and ribbon mics very nicely. People are loving it. The response has just been great. Um, we're in the coming year. We're gonna we're kind of filling out the lower end now that we've launched the MA thirty seven, which is a high end mic. Um, this guy here is a, a prototype dynamic. Very cool, and I think that'll probably be our best. Uh, I mean, our next product that we release, uh, we've got some other things on the drawing board that I'm excited about for next year. Uh, David never did like, you know, I, I couldn't launch a dynamic because David doesn't really like dynamics. He considers <laughs> them inferior to condensers and ribbons. But after a long, exhaustive search, I finally found a capsule that he liked that's smoother than you know, so we're going to call this, the, it's the MAD, D for dynamic. And it's, you know, our little marketing catchphrase is it's the smooth alternative because it's a much smooth, it doesn't have the same present peak. It's much more linear. 
than most of the dynamics out there. So maybe you want that, maybe you don't, but it is an alternative to what to the SM57s of the world or the SM58. Amazing. Much smoother. Well, yeah, that's amazing. People, well, people need that, right? Like that's, I feel like yeah, that's, you need options. There's so many, there's so many uses for having a great dynamic mic. Right. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. So yeah, David's like, I don't know why you'd want a dynamic, but if we're going to build one, you know, let's do a nice sounding one. So it's taken a while to get there, but we finally did. And looking forward to launching this next year. That's amazing. Well, Hey, everything you guys have put out, amazing. everything you've already put out sounds amazing. So I can't, you know, imagine anything less than that for, for what you're about to put out. Right. David and John Jennings, who I mentioned from Royer, before Royer Labs, they had a company called DVA, and it only lasted for a little while. They made, you know, uh, tube condenser mics, but they also made a mic pre and a, and a compressor of David's design, both tube-based. The mic pre sounded great. I, I got to have one for a while back in my Mad Dog days. The compressor was kind of LA2-ish, and I'd really like to make those again. Not those exactly, but I'd like to for us to have a, a tube mic pre, a high-end tube mic pre, and a high-end tube compressor. I think that would be great for us. That'd be awesome. Well, hey, I mean, you guys are building yeah. mics, so to, to have that perfect pairing of the pre or the compressor to go along with it would, would be right, perfect, right? Right, I think people would be interested in that, but I only want to do high-end. Of course. Of those, yeah. not looking to do a budget level thing. That makes sense. There's plenty of those out there. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, well, Dusty, thank you for taking the time to to do this today. I don't want to keep you too much longer. So, uh, if people want to learn more about you, either personally or through Mojave, what what are the best places for them to look at? Well, first off, Mojave website, uh, MojaveAudio.com, and our YouTube channel. And if you want to learn more about me, you can click on About Us, and there's a bunch of you know, way more that then you ever want to know about me is on there. <laughs> but also I've got, you know, my own Facebook page, the Mojave audio mic users group uh, is a good place and social media. I'm all, um, I'm way too exposed. So there's no going back at this point. So <laughs> just type my name in Google and there's way more than you could ever want to know about me. Amazing. And yeah, everyone listening, make sure to check out the website and definitely check out the audio test kitchen stuff. Cause yeah, when you really hear these mics compared against a lot of these other microphones that are very popular, it, it'll just blow you, blow your mind how good these mics sound. So, uh, I'm glad to hear you say that because, you know, we do pay to be on audio test kitchen. They're pals and we work together, but it is a, you know, it's a business. And this this player, we're probably, I don't know if we're the first, but we're one of the first companies to put the player on our website. So I really want, I hope people use it. You know, I hope it's worth. Yeah, absolutely. That, that was the first time I had ever seen it on a, on a website other than Audio Test Kitchen. So it was, it was great to see. And, and it definitely got my attention. It made me listen to all the mics and shoot, shoot them all out. So, yeah. Right. That Alex Owana, who is one of the founders of Audio Test Kitchen and is the guy I work with the most on it. I just said, okay, Alec, because it's taken a lot of time to get it to this point, to load all that stuff and figure it out. And they're still tweaking it. So we we got kind of a back and forth going. But I just got an e yesterday sent him an email and said, would you go on and tell me where we're at? Okay, we've, we've come this far. What else can we do to make it better? And I've, now I've got two pages of <laughs> assignments from Alex of things I need to address to tweak even further. But we want to take it as far as as we can go. That's amazing. And so, so that was kind of an invaluable bit of feedback I got from him 
It's like, okay, you guys are doing great. How about we do this? You know, so I encourage people to check it out and love feedback. Awesome. Well, yeah, everyone check it out. And uh, yeah, like I said, I think you'll be blown away by how great these mics sound. That's what we're in it for. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> well, Dusty, thank you for, thanks again for doing this. And uh, I really appreciate it. Great. My pleasure. So that was my interview with Dusty Wakeman. And it's great to talk with people who work for these companies because it gives you really great insight into their philosophies on how they build their products and what goes into it. And hearing Dusty talk about David Royer's passion for microphones and his commitment to making sure that high quality components go into their microphones, but without gouging the consumer, I think it really says a lot about Mojave Audio and the quality of microphones that they build. And you know, as we mentioned many times in this interview, definitely make sure to give them a listen. They do sound incredible. And when you look at their price points versus a lot of these vintage microphones that so many manufacturers are trying to clone, man, these microphones will blow them out of the water. So definitely make sure to check it out on their website, mojaveaudio.com. So I hope that you enjoyed this interview. And if you did, definitely make sure to subscribe to this podcast. That way you're notified about all new episodes as they go live on Wednesday mornings. We've got tons of great interviews ahead, so you definitely don't want to miss out. And also make sure to visit MasterYourMix.com. If you haven't been there yet, it's a website where I help out musicians with home studios and I help them create pro sounding recordings from their home by teaching you exactly the steps that you need to follow, the things you need to be paying attention to at every stage of the recording, editing and mixing process. And the goal here is to make it so that mixing becomes fun, mixing becomes easy for you and you can ultimately put out more music and be proud of the results that you're getting. So once again, visit MasterYourMix.com and while you're there, make sure to check out my book. It's called The Mixing Mindset and inside of that book, I walk you through the exact process of going through your mix, what things to pay attention to, when to be boosting and cutting with EQ, when to be adding compression, when to be using effects, automation, and so much more. So definitely make sure to check that out. It's called The Mixing Mindset and it's available at MasterYourMix.com. So that is it for this interview. I hope that you enjoyed that and I look forward to talking to you in the next one. Take care, guys. Thanks for listening to the Master Your Mix podcast. To have your questions answered, submit your questions to questions at masteryourmix.com. Please go to iTunes and subscribe and leave a review. And for more information on how you can improve your mixes, visit masteryourmix.com.